Well, thanks, Thea. Uh, my name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at EV. And it's good to gather here on Easter Sunday, isn't it? Throughout the centuries and in churches all around the world, on this day, Christians have greeted each other saying, He is risen. And then they've replied, He's risen indeed. Can we have a go at it? I just want to have a go now together. I'm going to say it, say it back to me. He's risen. He's risen indeed. Oh, how good. It's good to be here on Easter Sunday. Well, life is full of big questions. You might be here tonight with big questions about Jesus. You might be here tonight with big questions about other things. I've got young kids, and it seems like they just have a lot of big questions. This morning, this morning my son asked me, he said, Dad, how many numbers are there in the world? <laughs> and I was trying to answer him, and I was trying to explain infinity to a five-year-old, and it was hard. But our questions just get more complex as we get older, don't they? So we start to, as we become adults, ask those big questions about life. What am I here for? What's a fulfilling life? What does it look like? How should I spend my time, my money, and my energy? And I think for most of us, these questions don't seem to have immediate and obvious answers. I reckon in Auckland, our general approach to answering these questions is to say something like, well, whatever works for you. Whatever you feel like it works for you in your life, go for it, as long as you don't hurt anyone else. Is that fair? That's what you hear people say? Just, you do you. You do you. I want to put before you today, though, that the big questions in life are obvious and immediately answerable if we can first answer one question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? See, if we have an answer to that question, then all the other questions in life do have answers. All the big questions in our life flow out of answering that question question. The claim of the resurrection is central to the Christian faith, and I want to put to you today, it's central to each and every one of us as humans. It's the most significant and the most important question we could ask. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, did you hear Paul say there, Christians are to be pitied more than anyone? To be pitied more than anyone else in the whole world. See, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is a hoax, a prank, a hallucination, a, j- just something that was made up to benefit someone else, or even worse, a weapon to be used against others. That's what some people think. But if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then he is who he says he is. He, he, he really is the creator and ruler of the world, the one in whom we can have relationship with God, the one who will impact our eternity. See, I think lots of people in Auckland today think that Christianity and actually all religions are just based on wishful thinking. You just kind of close your eyes and you hope, and, and, and if you just you know, kind of have the wish and the experience, it might be helpful for you in your life. But what I want to do today is present to you the case for the resurrection Because I'm convinced that the resurrection is intellectually compelling, that it makes sense of you and I and how we view the world, and that it's beautiful. It's true, it's compelling, it's making sense of ourselves, and it's beautiful. It shows us what love actually is. See, in Jesus' resurrection, the whole pattern of this world has been overturned. So let's pray now that God would help us as we explore this claim of the resurrection. Father God, we're so thankful that we get to come and hear from your word in 1 Corinthians 15 tonight. We pray as we look at this claim of the resurrection that you would help us to hear clearly what the claim is. 
that you would show us that it is both true and convincing, but also beautiful. Father, we pray in a world full of lies and fake news and and, uh, multiple different options that you would show us what the truth is. Amen. Well, we're going to be working through the 1 Corinthians, the whole chapter of chapter 15. So if you've got a Bible, you might be ready to do some flipping around. So if you've got your phone, you can swipe around. Um, as long as you're not on any other apps. Um, so the first point here in your outlines is that history matters. It's worth noting that history matters as we consider the resurrection because I think the resurrection account is historical. It gives us historical evidence. And so what it doesn't give us is scientific evidence. All the kind of engineers and science students in the room are like, ugh. Like, so basically, what that means is there's not a lab somewhere where they're kind of testing to say if you have a Jewish male body that's you know, 34 years old and you keep it in a tomb at you know, this right temperature for this amount of hours, it'll suddenly come back to life. No, that's scientific. It's empirical. It's testable in the sense of repeated experiments. The Christian evidence for the resurrection is not like that. It's historical. It's not, it's not this empirical evidence, but it doesn't mean that there's no evidence. So when I say historical, what I mean is that there are loads of primary source documents that tell us about Jesus, who he was, and what he did. Written from a variety of sources, some of them Christian, some of them very anti-Christian. And even if you got rid of every single Christian account, which I think we can actually trust the accounts in the Bible, the, the Gospels they're called, even if you got rid of those, you were left with enough evidence to say heaps about Jesus. That he was a, a teacher, with a, no, a notable teacher with a reputation for doing miracles. That he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That he lived around this time in the first century AD. And that after his death, it was claimed that he was raised from the dead. And lots of people believed that claim and held it out to be true. So that's the historical evidence. Did you know there's more evidence for Jesus and who he was than for Julius Caesar in the historical record? Can you believe that? Like Julius Caesar, we all take him for granted, but actually there's far more to say about Jesus. The historian John Dixon says, if anyone can prove to me that Jesus wasn't a real man and and did these things that are on the historical record, he said, if you can show me, if you don't believe that and you're an academic in the field, I'll eat a page of my Bible. And so far, he's yet to eat a page of his Bible. See, John Dixon, the same historian, he says that Christianity happily places itself on the chopping block of public scrutiny. Because the Christian claim of the resurrection is both public and historical. Its basis is a public and historic event. And so the claims of the Christian faith are, in fact, verifiable. You can go and look at them, look at the historical record yourself. You can look at the evidence. Some people, though, say, well, yes, there's lots of historical evidence about Jesus, but surely those writers were biased, and so we can't trust them. To which, I mean, I think it's worth saying that every writer does have bias, but just because writers have bias, it doesn't mean that we can't trust what they say. We do this all the time with what we know about history. Where, and often, you know, the saying, like, history is written by the winners. Uh, I think that's true in a lot of cases. But here, we actually have noted historians who were not Christian writing about Jesus. There's Josephus, the Jewish historian. There's uh, uh, Tacticus, the Roman historian in the Annals. These guys are writing about Jesus, and they hate the idea of Jesus and who he was and what he said he did. 
They were biased against Jesus, and yet they've written so much about him. Or you think about Paul, right? He was a leader of the Jewish community, a noted teacher and scholar, a model and a kind of standout upright citizen. He would have had every bias in the world against believing that Jesus was really God. Because the Jewish faith was monotheistic. There is one God. There is no one else. There's no man can't raise from the dead. Paul had a heavy bias against what he's reported as fact. But as he looked at the resurrection and actually had an experience with Jesus himself, he was left with no other option. See, the the resurrection argument addresses Paul's intellect, his conscience, and, and his heart. And it changed his life around. And it's changed the life around of so many people all across the world for the last 2,000 years. And it's changed the life of so many of us in this room tonight. See, we can have a solid hope on the resurrection because it is a historical and public claim. So let's first look at the intellectual argument for the resurrection. The argument to the mind. We, we had it there in verse 3 to 9. Uh, and I think there's three key things that I want to highlight to you from this section to give us the historical case from the resurrection. It's, it's going to come on the screen. Do you see the three parts? The first one in verse 4 there is, is Jesus who was buried and he rose and the tomb is empty. There's the first claim, the empty tomb of the resurrection. And the second one we saw in verse 6 there, he appeared to Peter, the 12, and then to 500 others. What he's saying is that there are literally hundreds of people who saw Jesus. These are called the eyewitness accounts. They saw him. They spoke with him. Some of them ate meals with him. They touched him. But there was this overwhelming eyewitness account. See, Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthians only less than 20 years after the events of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so do you see there, what he says is, in verse 6, all the people who saw Jesus raised from the dead, you can go and talk to them. They're They're not all dead yet. You can talk to them. You can interrogate them. It's only been less than a generation. They're still alive. You can go and ask them for yourself. That's the second one, the eyewitness account. And the third one is then these eyewitnesses and Paul and others lived completely changed lives. Paul's life takes a 180 in its direction, but presumably so also do all the other eyewitness accounts. The fact that they're there and ready to talk means that they've actually now centered their life on the reality of who Jesus is and what he said, and they want to talk about it. They want to share the reality of what they experienced, what they saw, what they heard. They're open to talking about their testimony, even at great cost. See, lots of the first followers of Jesus actually ended up being persecuted and even killed for what they were talking about. And when you put these three things together, the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, and the changed lives, I think it presents a very powerful case for the resurrection as historical. The German scholar Wolfhart Pannenberg, he says this, The early Christians could not possibly have preached the resurrection of Christ publicly and successfully unless both the empty tomb and these hundreds of eyewitnesses really existed. See, if the tomb was empty and there was no resurrection witnesses who saw Jesus alive, they would have just said, oh, this is a hoax. 
Someone's stolen the body. Someone's trying to um, play a prank here. They would have been suspicious of that. Or if there were eyewitnesses, but the body was still in the tomb, and they could go and check it out and go and open up the stone and see the tomb, the body's still there. Now, the whole thing would have been shut down really quickly. They would have just said, no, no, the body's there. Let's go and look at it. <clears throat> or if there were people speaking about the resurrection, these eyewitnesses, who stood something to gain, people might have been suspicious. Oh, these people are becoming rich and powerful by what they're claiming. But the historical reality is, is that the eyewitnesses were killed. They were persecuted. They were attacked and tortured by the Roman Empire. They were counted out as insurrectionists. So many of them died horrific deaths. There was nothing to gain. And so I think it makes plausible sense to think that the resurrection of Jesus it brings these three truths together, that it makes sense of the historic account. You might say to yourself, well, that's good for Paul. He had a kind of experience with Jesus personally as well as all these eyewitness accounts. I didn't have that experience. What am I supposed to do? How can I trust some sources from so long ago and change my life and live based on them? We know what Paul would say because we've got it recorded for us. So you have a look with me in your Bibles, turn to Acts 26. Paul's standing before Festus, who's the governor at the time of the Roman kind of province. And it's him and Festus, the governor, and the king, King Agrippa, who was the, the Roman uh, put-in king of Judea at the time. And, and they, he'd been living in the area of uh, Judea when these events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection were claimed to have happened. And Paul's talking about why he's teaching that Jesus is the Son of God and talking about the resurrection and, and, and Jesus' birth and life and everything that happened. And when he comes to the resurrection, Festus stops him. He says this in verse 24. He says, As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus exclaimed in a loud voice, You're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. He's saying, You're crazy. You've, you learnt, you're a learned scholarly man, but you are crazy. This is lunacy, this idea of resurrection. But look at how Paul replies to Festus in verse 25. He says, Paul replied, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. On the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. For the king knows about these matters, and I can speak boldly to him, for I am convinced that none of these things has escaped his notice, since this was not done in a corner. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying to Festus, well, I'm not talking about these deep philosophical claims about life and death. I'm talking about history, the historical facts. I'm not talking about some experience that I had. I'm talking about history. It's objective, says Paul. And you get the sense there that behind this, Paul's kind of saying that he didn't really want to believe in Jesus either. But when he saw the evidence brought to him, he's, he, he kind of has to believe. And so he turns to King Agrippa and says, you know the facts. They weren't done in a corner. He says, I'm speaking words of truth and good judgment. You were there. You know these things. You, you saw. There's no secret knowledge and special experience about God. It, this is what's happened on the public record. You saw the tomb empty. You know what the guards are saying about the body not being there. You, you've talked to the eyewitnesses. You've heard the kind of grumblings going around the empire. You know about these things, but you don't want to deal with them. 
You see what Paul's trying to bring in there. He's saying, I didn't want to deal with them either, but the claim of the resurrection forced me to deal with it. I think you and I, we can be a little bit like King Agrippa today. I think the claim of the resurrection of Jesus is unsettling for us. Because what if it's true? If I start pulling on that string and, and, and find out there's actually verifiable, historically reliable evidence to it, I'd have to change my whole life. Maybe that's you here tonight exploring the claims of Jesus and thinking if this is true, my whole life is going to be flipped upside down. That's the case. That's true. And, and Paul's kind of saying, are you like this? Do you not want to deal with Jesus? I think lots of our city want to say, oh, good for you when you tell them you're a Christian. Or they might say, oh, that's interesting for you, depending on how positive or negative they are towards religion. Is that the case for you? When you have a conversation and someone's, you tell someone that you're a Christian, if you are a Christian, you usually get some kind of subjective, oh, cool for you kind of response. Oh, that's nice that that's fulfilling for you. See, believe in Jesus if it's, for, if it's good for you, says our society, but don't you dare tell anyone else that they ought to believe it, especially if it's not going to fulfill them. But believing in Jesus didn't fulfill Paul. It, it was a threat to everything he believed, his leadership, the position of authority he had, his worldview, his control over his own life. All of that was at stake for Paul. It wasn't fulfilling for him. He didn't want to believe in Jesus. But he had to because of the resurrection. I want to ask you that tonight, have you considered the claim of the resurrection? If you're here and you're exploring Jesus, have you actually spent the time to look at some of the eyewitness historical evidence before you? 2,000 years later, you and I were in the same boat as King Agrippa. We've got to account for the facts of history, the, the hundreds of eyewitnesses, the changed lives, the torture and persecution and death that those people were willing to put up with. Surely at the point of death, someone would crack and say, okay, okay, don't kill me. It was just a joke. But no, hundreds of people corroborated the same events to the point of death. If you haven't dealt with the historical claim of Christianity, can I say you don't actually have intellectual integrity to reject it. You might just say, well, people don't rise from the dead and, and have that kind of... But Paul would say, now you're doing philosophy. You're not talking about history and the historical facts. That might be what your friends say. That might be what you say yourself. It's fine if you have that uh, philosophical pre presupposition that people don't rise from the dead, but you're doing that in contradiction to the historical evidence. We don't do that with other places and events in history. So can I encourage you to check it out? Come along to EC like Andrew talked about earlier. We deal with the historical evidence of Jesus. And can I say to you, if you're sitting here tonight and you are a Christian, be encouraged. The case for the resurrection of Jesus is an intellectual one. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Lots of people say, well, Christians are just blindly believing. No, no, no. Christianity is willing to deal with the facts, even if it means flipping my life upside down. Throughout history, many of the world's top thinkers have been Christians, top philosophers, top scientists. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. The next time you're having a conversation and one of your friends says to you, oh, cool for you, 
Just have a go and say, have you ever looked at the evidence, the historical evidence for Christianity? Have you ever wondered if there might actually be something here to the truth that millions of people all over the world are believing? Just have a go at doing that next time you get in one of those conversations. See, Christianity is an intellectual faith. That's the first point. Let's move on now to the second point, the argument of the conscience. Pick it up with me a few verses later in verse 17. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. See, how did Paul deal with who he used to be? We saw a quick allusion to it in verse 9. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles, not whether to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Do you know what Paul did before he became a Christian? He killed Christians. He joyfully rallied people around him and went from city to city, persecuting, torturing, and killing Christians. A lot of Christians. And Paul then becomes a Christian himself. And can you imagine him writing to this church, sitting in a church building, listening to the words of Jesus, sitting next to the families of the people that he had ordered the deaths of or personally killed himself. Can you imagine how that would have felt for this guy? The shame, the, the way that would have kind of played out on his conscience and his heart every time he looked at someone who he'd caused serious harm to. See, how can you live with yourself? How can you get your confidence back? How can you get over your past? And, and that's the same question that lots of us are asking. Am I too far gone? Can I, can I actually deal with the things in my past and move on from them? Will they start to define me and the way I relate to others for the rest of my life? And Paul can move past it, and so can you, because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we can deal with what we've done in our past. See, I think you and I, we're tempted to find our, our identity, our who we are, how we think of ourselves, our value in our performance, in the good and the bad things that we do. And so we base our self-image on whether we're meeting other people's standards or just even our own standards. Whether we're able to live the life that we want to live shapes how we view our self-worth. See, if we're living up to the standard that we think we ought or others think we ought, we're happy, we're positive, we've got a pep in our step, we're ready to go. But when we fail to meet even our own standards or the standards of others around us, it, it can be crushing, kind of. It can be the kind of thing that makes us down and feeling like a failure and, and not even bold to kind of have conversations with anyone. I don't know if you've felt that in your own life, that our self-worth can go up and down based on our, our own evaluation or on others. See, the resurrection shows us something that's um, sweetly true but actually will kind of take us to the core of the human condition. The resurrection shows us the reality of our need, that each of us has failed, each of us has broken, each of us failed to even live up to our own standards. But in the resurrection, we also see the reality that we are so loved, that the God of the universe sent his son to die and his son rose from the dead, confirming the fact that in him we are loved. See, Paul is able to move ahead but from his past because of the resurrection, because of the way that shapes how he thinks about himself. 
See, because of the resurrection, we are weak sinners, broken people, but also infinitely loved and secure with our Father God. We're safe with Him because of the resurrection. See, if you've done a crime and you commit a crime and you, know, you have to go to jail for a couple of years to pay off your debt to society, well, how, how do you know when the debt is paid? What's well, when they let you out, right? You do the crime, you do the time, and then you come out of jail and the debt has been paid. The, the wrong that you've uh, committed, the offense to society, it's been paid. They let you out. <coughs> See, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. How do we know that the debt is paid? Well, sin couldn't hold him. That's how we know. He rose to life and he's no longer dead. He's out. That's how we know that the debt has been paid. That's how we know that we're secure in God's love. It's the resurrection. See, the resurrection is the receipt of Jesus' payment for yours and my sin. For the way we've rebelled against God, the way that we've turned our back on him, the way that we've lived calling the shots in our own life and not wanting to listen to him. At the resurrection, God stamped, it is paid in full across all of history and across your life if you put your trust in him. See, if Christ is raised, you are no longer in your sins. That's the opposite of you know, what Paul says. If Christ is not raised, you are in your sins. But we're no longer in our sins because Christ has been raised. That's the point Paul is making. He, he refers back to the historical argument of the resurrection and says that changes everything. You're no longer in your sins. You're safe and secure before God because Jesus had been raised and you now have life. And it means that our identity and our self-worth is no longer found and bound up in what we think of ourselves or even what others think of us or, or on the roller coaster of kind of the ups and downs of life and how we're feeling on any one day. No, it's found in Jesus in his death for us and the resurrection that shows that we are loved and secure. Our identity is bound up now in being forgiven and loved by God. That's far more stable than trying to find it in your own self-worth and self-performance. I think our society really struggles with this. Cancel culture, what is it? It's the kind of who you are in the moment. There's no acknowledgement that people are broken and fail. And where's forgiveness in a culture like that? But Christianity has something far more compelling to offer that acknowledges that people are broken and do the wrong thing at times, but that offers forgiveness and security and love in, in the full state of who humans are. It's far more enjoyable and, and inviting, I think, than what our society is saying. The resurrection has a massive impact on our conscience, on the way we see ourselves and the way we see others. See, because of the resurrection, we're able to forgive. We're able to be secure and know that I can forgive because I've been forgiven. I can show love because I've been loved so deeply. The resurrection has huge implications for how we view ourselves and others. And thirdly, the resurrection argues to the heart. It argues that the Christian faith is not just true, but it's beautiful. That, it, that it's a joy to actually live out these truths in our lives day to day. See, so flip across with me to verse 30. <clears throat> Paul says, Why are we in danger every hour? I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters. 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do to me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do you see what Paul's saying there? He faces danger. He faces death every day. He even fights against wild beasts. I don't know what the beasts were in Ephesus, but they're worth mentioning here for Paul. It's the beauty of the resurrection that allows Paul to do this, to face danger and even death. See, do you see it there in the end of verse 32? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. See, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead and the dead don't rise to life again, and then Paul won't knows that he won't rise to life again. And if that's true, then there's no hope for the future. And you may just well live life for the now, enjoying the good things of this life, eating and drinking the experiences, the things that bring you joy and make you feel fulfilled in the moment. Living for now. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, and death has been defeated, and Jesus is the first fruits, the first one to rise from the dead, the first crop in the production of new life in the reversal of the world. If all of that is true, then I can live for bigger than just the now. I can live for the future, for eternity. I'm freed up in order to be able to love others and live with hope, even when circumstances are hard. I don't need to live in fear of making the most of every moment. I can joyfully put others before myself because I'm, I'm, I'm not bound up and captured by just trying to suck the marrow out of this life. There's more to come. These are just the first few years of the rest of my eternity. And that's all true because Christ rose from the dead. The resurrection means I can sacrifice now because I know the goodness of eternity that I'm looking forward to. It fuels us to live with a solid hope, a hope that shapes every decision, every moment, every relationship, everything that we value as Christians. Even in failure, even in hard times, it allows us to love and to pour ourselves out for others because we have been so loved and we know what's coming. See, because of the resurrection, the sting of death has been cut off forever. Last place we're going to flip to, turn to verse 54. <clears throat> the sting of death has been cut off. Here's, here's what Paul says. He's reading from some kind of a poem. We're not sure where it's from. But he says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. See, Paul's not saying that death no longer hurts. I'm sure lots of us in this room have experienced loved ones or those that we know dying and it hurts. There's this separation and sadness and grief that we feel when death still has a pain attached to it. But Paul's saying that the sting of death has been dealt with by Jesus. When? When he rose from the dead. When death has been swallowed up in victory, when Jesus beat death by the resurrection. It's the, the truth that <laughs> the sting of death is the reality that we're cut off from God. That, we get, that death is actually the moment of judgment and the moment where God will hold all people to account for where they've treated him. But because of Jesus and his death in our place and his resurrection, we don't have to fear that anymore. And so death doesn't have the same sting that it used to. 
The American evangelist Donald Barnhouse, he was a, a Christian and, and a preacher, and he was married to his wife for a number of years before she tragically passed away with cancer. And on the way to the funeral, he was driving with his young children, and they, and they, and they passed a truck. And they were sitting in the kind of the shadow of the truck. The truck was next to them and it was blocking the shine and they were in the shadow. And he turns to his daughter and he said to her, would you rather be run over by the truck or by the shadow? And, and the daughter replies, the shadow, I guess, because it can't hurt me. Shadow can't hurt me, but the truck can. And here's what Barnhouse replied to his daughter on the way to his wife's funeral. He said, it was only the shadow of death that went over your mother. She's actually alive, more alive than we are right now. And that's because 2,000 years ago, the real truck of death hit Jesus. Because Jesus crushed, because death crushed Jesus, and we believe in him, now the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. And the shadow of death is but my entrance into glory. Do you see what Barnhouse is saying there? Death's sting has been taken away because even death itself just brings us closer into relationship with the God who loves us. Death doesn't put us up before judgment or anything bad like that. It's actually the entryway into life for eternity forever with the God who made you and loves you. That's all true for you because of the resurrection of Jesus, if you'll trust him. See, ever since the first humans Ever since the first sin entered the world, the pattern of this world has been life to death. Lots of us here in this room, we're young, but as you start to get older, you start to get your body breaking down. Your knee starts to hurt. You, the, you don't recover as quickly after, after sport or other things like that. Your bodies get sicker and we break down until they eventually stop working. We move this from this life and vitality and, and all that to like breaking down and stopping working. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, and I think it's compelling to say that it is, then the pattern of life to death has been reversed. See, with the resurrection of Jesus, he brings in a radical new pattern. It's no longer life to death, but it's now death and life. See, Jesus' death brings us life now and then into eternity. Even death itself is just talked about in the New Testament as sleep. It's just this moment before eternity with God forever. See, death has been defeated at the resurrection and we find life. This Easter, can I encourage you to be reminded and convinced more and more of the life you have in Jesus because he rose from the dead. You will too. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful that this Easter Sunday we can sit here and say, He is risen, He is risen indeed. We're so thankful that because of Jesus we don't have to fear the sting of death. We're so thankful that because of Jesus we can know that we are safe with you. We pray this week that you would fill us with confidence. Fill us with confidence in the resurrection, that it's intellectual, that it's compelling, that it changes the way that we see the world. We pray that you would help us to view ourselves not based on our performance, but based on your love. We pray this week that you would show us the beauty 
of trusting Jesus. We pray in a world that is full of fear, that is scared and that doesn't know where to turn for truth, that you would help us to hold out the truth in a way that is beautiful and joyful and full of love because of the offer that is found because Jesus rose from the dead. We're so thankful that in him where we had death, now we find life in this age and in the age to come. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.